We're going to begin our time together in verse 30, and we're going to go all the way down through chapter 10. Big chunk of text this morning. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Remember earlier in chapter 9, all the things that Paul has been talking about, about God's sovereignty and his choice, and the issue that we're continuing to kind of walk through is, well, what happened to Israel? What's, why is Israel seemingly left out from the promises and so on? And so Paul gets to verse 30, and he says this. He says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him? in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voices has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. 
I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Father, we ask in these moments that you would help us to gain clarity as we read, as we study your word together. I pray that, uh, Father, we would not be a people of disobedience. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us through your spirit, that we would be obedient to the teachings that you've given to us, that we would walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be a people mindful of how it is that you go about saving the lost. And you do it by sending us out to proclaim that gospel message, both with our mouths and with our lives. And so God, help us to be mindful of these things this morning. Teach us, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as we look at this text this morning, I want you to remember back where we are. We've been walking through the book of Romans for the better part of a year, and um, the big question that we have kind of find ourselves now in, in, in chapters 9 through 11 is really important. If you remember last week, that's what we talked about. Paul has this question that he believes is probably being asked by the people that he's writing to, and the question is, okay... Well, all of these promises that God has made, all of these things that he said in chapter 8, how can we be confident that God is actually going to keep his promises? Because it looks like, just from the outsider's look, it looks like maybe God's not going to keep his promises with Israel. Because Israel, for the most part, at this point in Paul's ministry, and the reality now is that many of the Israelites... They have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so the question in is, well, Paul, okay, what about Israel? What about all the things that God said he was going to do for Israel? What is going to happen with Israel? And, and how can we know that you're faithful? How can we know that you can be relied upon? How can we know that you are just? And so those are the things that Paul began to walk us through last week in chapter 9, verses 1 to 29. Paul answered those questions that came up regarding God's character and God's faithfulness. And then he, he began to explain to us what it meant for God's word to not have failed, right? So if God's promises to Israel are still ongoing, why is it that many of the Israelites were not coming to faith? Why is it they were rejecting the Messiah? How is it that God's word was still true? And so Paul begins to explain to us that our understanding about who is Israel was really the fundamental problem that we were facing. And so he explained to us what the true people of God is like, true Israel. Uh, and he says that being true Israel means that you are a part of the remnant, but you're a part of the remnant of the people of faith. In fact, this is what he said, chapter 9, verse 7. He said, for not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And so true Israel is not necessarily ethnic Israel, but rather it is the children of promise. It is those who by faith are trusting in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the anointed king over all. Whether they are Jews or Gentiles, Friends, when we look around at ourselves, if we're followers of Christ, we are true Israelites. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's getting at. 
And so all of the promises are wrapped up in Jesus. So God is not ever going to not keep his promises, and he's always going to fulfill those promises, but he's going to fulfill them in the person of Jesus Christ. And the great benefit for us as followers of Jesus is that we get to experience the joys of the inheritance of Christ as true Israel that is found in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. Paul also then points us to the Old Testament and explains that that God has, has never chosen a people based upon their ethnicity. He's never chosen a people based upon how large they were or who they were connected to or some sort of ancestry. He's never looked at them and sought people that were good and so he chose them because of their goodness or their moral conduct. But rather, it's always been a matter of promise. It's always been a matter of his sovereign choice in the matter. It's a sobering truth to think about when we look at that, the sovereignty of God. The fact that God's sovereign choice has nothing to do with all of the things that we can change. Doesn't have anything to do with who you are descendants from. Doesn't have anything to do with your ethnicity or your nationality. Doesn't have anything to do with your your merit or how good you try to be. It doesn't have anything to do with your desires or your goals or your life plan. It doesn't have anything to do with your moral code. The choice is God's to make, based upon his own character. And what we know from the scriptures is that God's character is just, but also that God's character is that he is love, that he is compassionate, that he is merciful. And we have to remember that he will have compassion on those whom he will have compassion, and he will have mercy upon those whom he will have mercy. So we looked at last week this idea of God's sovereignty, not just sovereignty over everything else that we're okay with, but sovereignty over this whole idea of salvation. But then now today, Paul kind of shifts and helps us to see kind of the other side, the human perspective of it, and the reality that Israel is responsible for their rejection of their own Messiah. So that's what we're looking at here this morning. So Israel, in this text, we see Israel distorted God's word, and as a result, they rejected the message of salvation that was for them and for the Gentiles. So the salvation that is for all people, whether you're Jews or Gentiles, Israel rejects this message and then disobeys everything that God has told them. And as a result, they find them still, themselves still under the judgment of God. So from chapter 9, Paul shows us that God is always faithful to his word. God is always faithful to his word. God is completely just. And God has the right to do with his creation whatever God wants to do with his creation. That is the great benefit of being the creator. You can do whatever you want with the creation. And he has mercy on whom he wants and he hardens whom he wants. And so the question still remains then, well, what about the Jews? Why have the Jews been excluded from the promises of salvation? We see that in some way, these things begin to to become more clear to us, but it's difficult as we walk through this, recognizing the sovereignty of God and recognizing the fact that there is human involvement and human agency and human responsibility, and realizing as we approach this, this difficult task of trying to explain these things, that not everything is always clear on this side of the veil. 
that here we find ourselves, there's, there's few things that I want you to take home with you this morning. And the first one is this, that salvation is not by works, but by faith. Now, this is a constant theme throughout the book of Romans. This is not something new. This, hopefully this isn't something that shocks you. But you've heard this over and over as Paul has been walking through this book. Salvation is not by works, but by faith. So he begins this section by asking this question. He says, what shall we say then? He said, how how can we understand all of the things that have transpired here? That the Gentiles, get this paradox, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they've, they've received it, they've attained it. That is righteousness that is by faith, 31. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? You see the paradox? Those who weren't even interested in it got it. And those who were trying their best didn't get it. And he says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based upon works. Okay. So he begins this section with this question in verse 30. What shall we say then? So where are we going to go from here? What is going on? How can we understand Israel's situation now? We see this paradox unfolding. Those who who weren't looking for it, somehow they got it. And those who, who were earnestly chasing after it, they didn't get anything in relationship to it. But why why did this take place? Well, Paul says it very clearly. He says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. So the Jews were trying to earn salvation by their own merit, by their own efforts. And so they were ignoring the rescue plan that God was offering to them. And so from what Paul has already said, we know that that as human beings, we cannot earn salvation by our own good works. In fact, he said in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, he said, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But Israel refused to come to God in faith alone. They were leaning upon the things that they could they could manage, the things that they could control, the things that they could do. They kept trying to do the right thing. Have the right kind of obedience so that God would love them, so that God would save them. But it wasn't going to work for them. And so now Paul says that they've stumbled over this stumbling stone. Look what he says back in the passage. He says, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, there's two different places that Paul's kind of drawing from when he looks at this illusion about the stone. The, the first we find in Isaiah 8, God is announcing that he is going to judge Israel because of their refusal to fear him, to trust him, and so he's placing a stone in their path to trip them up. And it says, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of fence and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. So Paul's alluding to this passage and others, but but then he kind of turns it a little bit and begins to talk about this stone. It's not just a stumbling stone, but it's actually the cornerstone. If you don't know that much about buildings, 
In the ancient world, the cornerstone was really an important piece of the architecture. The cornerstone was what, what the builders used to not only provide some stability, it was a very large stone, but it was also there to, to kind of guide the direction of the building. So it created stability and it created this, this straightness for the building. And so that is what Jesus is. Jesus is the one on which everything else is built, and he provides this stability for the people of God. He provides this straightness for the people of God so that they can follow him, so that they can lean upon him. And so Paul says that this stone that the builders, Peter uses this language, the builders rejected, the Israelites rejected, that stone has become the chief corner stone. Paul then goes on and he says that Jesus it's not just the cornerstone, but he is, now it kind of shifts gears, he is the end of the law. That word is really not that clear for us in the English because it, it does end, sometimes we don't really, we don't grasp the, uh, the entire uh, meaning behind the word. The word in the Greek is telos, but it means this kind of goal or the purpose or the culmination, the fulfillment. So it's, it's, it's much bigger than simply he put it into something. It's not even that he cut it off, it's that he now has become the culminating example of what that law stood for. This is what Jesus is. It says, verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the fulfillment to which the law pointed to. We see that throughout the Old Testament, don't we? Everything that you're looking at in the Old Testament, you see the sacrificial system. You see the lambs that are being sacrificed. You see uh, you see all of the prophecies that are pointing toward this greater good, this Messiah that's going to come, the stump of Jesse, all of the stuff that's pointing toward this one Messiah to come. Jesus fulfills those things. But then Jesus, he does something even better than we could possibly imagine. He makes the unrighteous righteous. Not by means of the law. Not by means of making them do the right things. Them helping themselves, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. No, he makes them righteous by dying in their place and giving them a foreign righteousness. He gives them his own righteousness. So, we look at this, what does this mean for us? We have to be careful because our tendency, I think, probably as human beings is to try and justify ourselves. Justify ourselves before God based upon the goodness of our lives, the moralness of our lives. Now, people who try to seek kind of a relationship with God by works, leaning upon their own works, they usually take, they make two mistakes that are very important for us to take note of. The first one is that they underestimate their own sin. Underestimate their own sin. They don't see themselves as sinners in the way that the Bible sees them as sinners. And so as a result, what happens is they kind of discount the sin. It's not that big of a deal. It's not really something that is affecting other people's lives. It's not a big deal. They kind of underplay the impact of the sin, and they ignore sin. So if it's not that big of a deal, then what's the big deal if we just kind of push it to the side, put it in a room where nobody else is going to know about it, shove it under the rug? It's not that big of a problem. And so as a result, when you don't have a right understanding of what sin is, you don't have a right understanding of yourself and your relationship to this holy God. You know, and we can look at heinous crimes that occur in our country, whether it's in San Bernardino or Dallas, and we look and we see and we think, man, that's sin right there at work. 
These people are, are hurting folks, murdering folks. And we see that and we say, yeah, that, that's sin. Those people are sinners. But then we kind of look at ourselves and we think, ah, but, you know, I've never committed an act of terrorism. You know, I've never kidnapped a child. I've never done this or that. I'm, I'm not that bad. I mean, you look at my record as opposed to these people's record. And the problem is we begin to kind of compare ourselves with these. And, and, and the problem is God is not comparing us with them. The comparison is between us and our sin and the holy, infinite goodness of God. That's the comparison. And so it doesn't matter if you think that your life looks better than the life of other people that have committed things that you've never even considered committing. The issue is the sin itself. When we think about ourselves, we, we like to think that we commit more respectable kinds of sins. Right? The kinds of sins that people don't immediately cover their mouth in shock over, right? Because they've become normal to us. We're the respectable kinds of sins. We think our sins are certainly not as displeasing as other kinds of sins to God. Surely we've not been so bad as to deserve God's judgment in our lives. But the truth is, the apostle says the exact opposite the sin that is in our lives. God says that there is no one who is righteous. No one. Not a single person. Not one of us is righteous enough. Not one of us has the good works to do what Jesus did and die for the rest of humanity. Not one of us has the ability to do that. Because we're all unrighteous. So the sinner thinks that maybe he's going to save himself by the goodness of his works. First problem is he underestimates sin. The second thing is he underestimates the cost of salvation. He underestimates the cost of grace. He thinks that by doing a few good things or changing things midstream, if you could at this point in your life decide, you know what, I'm going to stop doing all the bad things, I'm going to start doing the good things, that somehow the good things in the end will outweigh the bad things. Underestimate the cost of grace. We think that by doing a few good things, we can change the impact of all of those foibles that we had in our past. Now, sinner maybe even refers to sin as mistakes. Just to kind of downplay those things. Sanitize sin. Make it sound not so bad. We use these different euphemisms. euphemisms. We, we say, well, I fell into sin this week. Instead of actually calling it what it was. Or we lost, you know, control of our, 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 our mouth a little bit. Instead of saying we just lashed out and cussed our family out, right? Whatever it might be. We kind of sanitize it. Make it sound better than it actually is. To make it more respectable. But it downplays, when we downplay the, the, the devastating impact and reality of sin, it also downplays the incredible cost of salvation. The Apostle Paul says that Christ himself is the price. So the most valuable, most important person in all of the world, Jesus Christ, God saw fit to, to send his own son, the most valuable person in the entire universe, to die on a cross for your sins. That's a pretty costly price. 
It's a pretty costly price. So our salvation is, is the most costly thing in the entire world, even though it's offered to you freely. Just because it's free doesn't mean it didn't cost. Now, there's many of us who, uh, in a polite kind of Christianized Southern culture, we wouldn't come right out and say something like, well, I'm not a sinner, you know? I don't need to be saved by Jesus Christ. We would never actually verbalize that. But the truth is, we may think that, just not in the same terms. Or we may live that way. We may think of other people outside our realms of influence or at work or in our family or out on the West Coast because that's where all the kooks live. We think maybe those folks, those folks, those are the sinners. We may believe that uh, we're able to do certain things that would make God happy with us, to receive some grace in our lives. Maybe believe, essentially, that, uh, that we could earn God's favor back just by doing a few good things, just by attending church, just by giving in the offering on a Sunday morning, just by showing up on Wednesday night, learning, worshiping a little bit, having some fellowship time, just by being obedient or, or keeping certain stipulations or rules or rituals or, or participating in certain ceremonies. And the Apostle Paul is saying that that is precisely the mistake that Israel was making. Do you get the connection? That's what Israel was doing. They were thinking that if they just did what they were supposed to do in regards to the law, that somehow they would receive the grace. Somehow they would get the salvation. Somehow they would get the promises if they just did it all on their own. And friends, that's the danger that we face in our own culture as well. Relying upon our own work instead of the work of Jesus. So we see the Jews have rejected Jesus because of their refusal to come to him by faith alone. Next we see that salvation is by faith alone completely. Look, the next principle, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. We say this a lot. By faith alone and in Christ alone. So the faith has to be put into the right thing. Not faith alone in, in faith in yourselves or faith in your intentions or faith in your fellow man or faith in a particular organization or a church or a preacher, but faith alone in Christ alone. Look at verse 5. It says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is a Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, so now Paul refers us back to the Old Testament. He shows us another contrast here. Leviticus 18, verse 5, Moses 
is explaining to the Israelites all of the things that there were necessary requirements as being a part of this new covenant. Uh, necessary requirements in regards to the law. If they're going to live in this community with God in the center and God is not going to unleash His holiness upon all of them and strike out and kill them all, they're going to live in this community with God, then there's some certain things that were going to need to be done. And so if they follow God's commandments, they will live, that's what he says, and God will give them the promised land. But that righteousness that he's talking about, even as Paul is alluding to it, that righteousness is a temporary righteousness based upon the law. You see me? It's a temporary experience. That righteousness was based upon whether or not they were going to be destroyed in the next 20 minutes. God is, God is being gracious to them. He's, he's establishing His dwelling place in the center of the people, and He's not lashing out because of their unholiness because they're being obedient to the things that He's told them to do. So this is a temporary situation. It's not a, a long-lasting, eternal kind of righteousness. That's not, what, that's not what the law provides for them. But Paul says, but the righteousness of faith is an eternal kind of righteousness. That's the difference. So the Israelites got to live with God just for a little while in that community. Well, what Paul is saying is that righteousness that comes through faith is a righteousness that will extend out into the eons of eternity. So Paul then, he begins to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 13 to help them understand that this, this idea of a gospel or the law, it's not a mystery. It's not as though it's something that's so well hidden that nobody could see it. So he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 and 14. He says, For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So Paul's point here is very clear. He uses Deuteronomy 30 to emphasize that just as the law was not something that was hidden and distant from the Israelites, so the gospel that is by faith and, and faith alone in Christ alone is not something hidden or distant from the Jews in Paul's day. It's not though God's just hiding things from people. It was freely available to the Jews, freely available to the Gentiles. So in the same way, Moses tried to convince the Israelites that obeying the law did not mean that a person has to scale the highest mountain that they can find or, or cross the deepest seas. In fact, Paul uses the same kinds of words to point to Christ. The reality is the heights have already been scaled. The mountains have been climbed. And things have been brought back, the gospel. that The depths have been plumbed by Christ because Christ has come down to the world and He's been raised from the dead. So to be made right with God, God's not saying that you have to somehow bring about an incarnation. You don't have to bring somebody back from the dead in order to understand the gospel. He's saying it's right here in front of you. It's right in front of you. It is, it is right in front of you for your access. This gospel. Then Paul goes on and he says in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Remember he said that in chapter 1. 
No distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Just stop there and let that soak in. Listen to it. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone, not just Jews, not just people with the right kind of ethnicity, not with just the people who have the money, not with just people who are poor, not with just people who are, who are bombarded by all kinds of moral problems or struggling in this area or this area or people that are or living in different countries or worshiping foreign gods. He says, all people, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that's true. Sometimes our English doesn't help us see the power of what the author is actually saying here when it talks about Jesus, when he talks about him being the Lord. The English word for Lord is used about 600 times in the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It's just the Greek version of the Old Testament that Paul would have been familiar with. 600 times it uses that term kurios, which is the Greek or Lord that stands in, if you look in your, in your Bible, I think most Bibles, you'll notice the difference. There's usually, there's a, there's a Lord with a capital L, and then there's a Lord with all caps. You notice the difference? It's there. You just <laughs> pay attention when you're reading, right? So the, 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 the little L, or the one with the one L is the only capital letter in the word, it usually refers to the word Adonai, which is just another word for kind of Lord or something like that. Um, but the word that has all caps is the covenantal name of God. That's the, the, the I am, the Yahweh. In fact, the Holman Christian Standard Bible actually translates all of those, instead of putting them in caps, just translates them as Yahweh, which is really, really cool. But it's, it's used 600 times. And, and Paul, in the New Testament, we see that word being applied to Jesus an awful lot. So when he's talking about, just like he did in Philippians, when he talked about every knee bowing to Jesus, and he's actually going back to Isaiah and kind of showing how Jesus is this Yahweh, he, he's saying the same thing here. The confession is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the one who shares the same name as Yahweh of the Old Testament. Jesus shares the nature of Yahweh, the holiness of Yahweh, the authority, the power, the majesty, and the eternity of Yahweh. This is who Jesus is. So to say Jesus is Lord is not just an acknowledgement of uh, uh, the fact that he's, he's, he's a master or that he's uh, even generally just God at some level. It's not just the tip of the hat at Jesus' divinity. That's not at all what it is. It's something so much more powerful than that. This confession is a covenantal acceptance. So the, the, it sounds really easy for someone to say, well, if I just confess that Jesus is Lord, isn't that all that needs to happen? Well, they just say it with their mouth and everything's all right. It's so much more than that. It's a part of a covenantal acceptance. You're saying that Jesus is Lord. It is a statement that embraces all of who Jesus 
is, that he is the God that created the entire world, that he is the God who made a promise to Abraham, that he is the God who descended on Mount Sinai, that he is the God that called the Israelites out of Egypt, that he is the God who promised a Messiah, that he is the God who came as that in-flesh dwelling place, the tabernacle of God among his people in the flesh. That He is the God that rules and reigns over everything on this earth, both past, present, and even into the future. That He's the God that that we owe everything to. All of our worship, all of our praise, Jesus is the I Am. Jesus is Yahweh. That's what the Jesus is Lord means. It's a covenantal acceptance. And it's an exclusive commitment. Now, For people living in Rome at that time, it would have been a direct challenge to the divinity of Caesar. For them to say, Jesus is Lord, means that they have to not say that Caesar is Lord, which is what Caesar demanded. But friends, when you look at your life, saying Jesus is Lord is not something that is simple. And yet it is. It's giving everything to Christ. In resting and trusting everything in Jesus Christ, being a part of that covenantal acceptance, that life in Christ. The Christian gospel, Paul says, demands both confession with our mouths and belief in our hearts. It's not enough that we just we simply say something about Jesus. Paul says that belief has to actually stir us to the point where we actually do something about it. I mean, that's what real belief is anyway, isn't it? We talk about this all the time. We use the illustration of the fire all the time. Somebody tells you something that's going to change this moment. And you don't do anything as a follow-up. Tells the person what? I don't believe what you're saying, right? Because belief always requires action based upon the belief. If you really believe it, it's the same reason if you were on top of the house or on top of the church. God forbid some of you with balance issues, right? On top of the church, and you began thinking, you know what, I've been watching some DC movies. Superman he has this uncanny ability of just kind of just lifting off and floating out into nowhere, right? And he can fly. I believe I could do that. I wouldn't believe that you believe that unless you actually jumped off the church, right? That's when you know. And that's when we all know you're not Superman, right? Belief always means something's going to happen afterwards if you really believe what you're saying. Paul says we're responsible for our sins. We look back again, let's get back to the text. We look back in this this experience with the Israelites. The Israelites have rejected Jesus, but God says that salvation is for anyone who believes, both Jew and Greek. And he will save all those who turn from their sin and confess that Jesus is the Lord. All of them. And I think that's one of the most exciting parts of the gospel. Is that God doesn't, he's not going to turn anyone away who's coming to him in repentance and faith. He will always 
save those who are repentant and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have to share the gospel. That's why we have to be consistent about it. We have to consistently go about our communities, go about in our workplace and and share what Jesus has done in our lives, share what Jesus has done for all of us. Because, friends, we don't know who God is softening. I can't see into the hearts. I'm willing to wager almost everything I've got that you can't either. Who does? God's the one who softens hearts. John 6, Jesus says, no one comes to, the, comes to me unless the Father draws him. God is the one that is actively preparing the hearts. God is the one who is actively, he's actively regenerating people so that as they hear the gospel, they are awakened to their mind and they see the Lord Jesus Christ and there's repentance and faith. God is the one who is saving. And so we go and we share the gospel indiscriminately because God is the one who is softening hearts, not us. Finally, look at this last section. Faith comes from hearing God's word. I told Cameron that I was going to be shorter today, but it doesn't look like it, does it? Verse 14, we'll read some of it, not the whole section. You've got to read this section because it's so awesome. Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Remember, what is he saying? He's saying they have to call on the name of the Lord, right? That's the calling. There's the connection there. So how are they going to call on this Jesus as Lord in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone sends them? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Then he goes in and begins to talk about the Israelites again and their rejection. Paul is beginning this section by asking these, these questions. You remember, it's, it's necessary for salvation that people call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he was just said. But how are they going to call upon him if they've not believed in him? Or how are they going to embrace the truth about him? How are they going to, to see this truth about who Jesus is if they've never heard the good news about him? How can they hear the gospel about him if there is no one walking around in their community telling people about him? And how is there going to be people walking around in their community telling people about him if there is no church that is sending them out and training them to go and to do these things? Friends, this is the mission of the church. This is what we're about. Meeting here on Sunday morning is a perk. Gathering together for worship, that is a, that is a joy that we have because when we gather together as one entity, one organism, we, we are able to worship the Lord in a different way than we do throughout the week. But the mission of the church is not to come together right here and to worship. Your mission, we find it in, in Matthew 28. The mission of the church, Matthew 28, Jesus says, as you're going, not, not just go, right? I think sometimes we get so focused on the go, we don't realize that it's just a participle. <laughs> it's not the verb. It's not go, therefore, the bad translation. It's as you're going, as you're walking around, as you're working, as you're doing life. Here's the verb. Make disciples of all nations. So you don't have to go places. 
to be a disciple maker. You don't have to go places to share the gospel. You do it here. That's your mission, to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And Jesus isn't going anywhere. He's not leaving us to do that on our own. He sends his Spirit. First, today we have to remember that human responsibility and God's sovereignty go together. And sometimes when we try to understand salvation, it's like looking at the back of a really beautiful curtain or tapestry. You know, we see the, the back side of it, and I mean, if we're honest, some of the threads look like they don't make a whole lot of sense, right? And you're thinking, wow, why, why would you choose that color there? Why didn't you maybe shore up some of those threads? It just kind of looks nasty, all hanging back on the back of it. And we think, man, this whole thing, this whole salvation, I don't really understand how it's all working together. But the reality is that when we are in eternity, when Christ returns and we're living with him in eternity and we're, we're experiencing that knowing like we've been known, the curtain then turns around. And then we begin to see the beautiful tapestry of what God has done both in his sovereignty and in human agency. We have to, we must never think that our salvation can be experienced because we're good enough. Our goodness is evil in comparison to God's righteousness. We can only receive salvation by faith. Salvation is not by works, but by faith alone in Christ alone. And friends, we have to remember that the way that God has chosen to save people is by sending you. By sending you. All of us. For us going out, sharing the gospel every day, talking with people, talking with neighbors, talking to people that we run into or that run into us, talking to them about the gospel. So that maybe, God willing, all of us will be able to say, embracing that new covenant relationship, we could say, Jesus really is.